I'm Zoe. And I'm Lizzie. And how are you today, Zoe? I'm good. I am a little nervous to be presenting with my new microphone for the first time because it is very finicky. So if there are any weird noises, I'm sorry about that. We are working on adjusting. We're getting used to the fancy microphones. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing I'm a little nervous about. But other than that, it looks like it's going to be a beautiful day outside. So I'm excited about that. And I'm also going on vacation again in a few days so i'm also really excited to wear same place as before just with okay, my parents yeah. again beautiful place yes. yep anyway um oh you didn't actually ask yeah <laughs> lizzie how are you today <laughs> i was just gonna go into anyway um i'm good i turned 25 yeah a couple days ago happy birthday thank you and um um I'm getting my second dose tomorrow, so that's exciting. And I was talking to my family because obviously they got they got vaccinated like months ago, but they said they didn't have a really big reaction any of them. So that's good news for me. Yeah, because of genetics, I assume it applies to vaccine. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's how I am. <laughs> yeah, that is really exciting. I am very excited for you to get vaccinated. Thank you. You too. And my best friend, who I have not seen in like a year and a half, is now in Amsterdam. Yes, so I'm very excited about that because, you know, all no, we all love your friend very much. Yes, we all love Constantina. <laughs> Constantina. <laughs> Shout out. Um, yeah. So who are we talking about today? Okay, so today we are talking about La Llorona, who is oh. <clears throat> a spirit from Mexican-American folklore. Yes, I am familiar with her, and I'm very excited that we're going to talk about her, because I, I always figure we talk about her eventually. Yes, I've mentioned her like five times, so I was like, you know um, what, yeah. I'm just going <laughs> to talk about her, because otherwise it's going to get silly. Um, so Lizzie, what do you know about her? Let's start there. Um, she's from Mexico. There, I think there is probably different legends, but I think the main thing is that she like lost her child, mm-hmm. and then so she just like walks around the water like grieving and like maybe scaring children and crying. And her name means like the crying woman. Yeah, so that is pretty accurate. Um, her name does mean the weeping woman or the wailing woman, as far as I'm aware. She appears as a woman, often in white. And she roams near water and warms the loss of her children. Most stories say that she drowned them, so that's a little a little wrinkle there. Ah, uh, yes. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I have. I feel like I've seen also ones that say that, like ones that say that she drowned them, and also ones that yep. they mm-hmm. that she like that they died, like yeah. not her killing them. But I don't know. Either way, you'll tell me. I'm sure. Either way, there are dead children, and so just as a warning, this episode will deal pretty significantly with themes of child loss and infanticide so if that's something Mm -hmm. that you are sensitive to you might want to wait till the next one and the legend as you sort of implied is often employed by parents to scare their children into good behavior often to prevent them from going out after dark or to keep them from playing near dangerous bodies of water so she's sort of like a boogeyman figure in 
like the popular conscious of uh, Mexican and Mexican-American culture. So the basics of the legend, we've sort of already gone over them, but it has many regional variations as all legends of this type do. The most typical mm-hmm. version goes as follows. There's a beautiful woman. I saw several names, of course. Um, ones I saw repeated often was Maria. I also saw Luisa. And then according to Wikipedia, she's often named Xochitla, which was, uh, which I didn't see anywhere else, but according to Wikipedia, it's common. So there's that. Um, and she's determined to only marry the most handsome man she finds and rejects all her other suitors. She falls in love with a rich ranchero or conquistador and managed to woo him by playing hard to get, being aloof or acting uninterested. And eventually they marry and she has two children with him. They're most often said to be sons. One day she sees her husband with another woman being unfaithful. And in her rage and grief over this betrayal, she drowns their children in a nearby river. Immediately regretting this, she drowns herself as well. However, due to her actions, she is unable to enter the afterlife and is forced to wander the world in search of her children, weeping all the while. And that's the general story that's told about her. It's very sad. Mm -hmm. So the origins of the story um, are debated. There are colonial texts that show this legend has pre-Hispanic origins in the region. The Aztec creation myth tells the story of the hungry woman, who is a spirit that cries constantly for food and is never satisfied. So there's the weeping theme there as well. And then she's also been linked to the Aztec goddess Kiwakuatla, who is associated with motherhood and fertility. And she's also known to weep for her lost son, Mishkoatla, whom she abandoned at a crossroads. So similar themes there. Yeah. However, the legend of La Llorona is most often associated with the colonial period, as we can see from her marriage to a Spanish colonizer that is in the sort of general understanding of the legend. Mm-hmm. And she's often associated with La Malinche, who is the Nahua woman who served as Hernán Cortés's interpreter and is thus believed to have aided his conquest of the Aztecs. Oh. In what way is she associated with her? Just like, Well, they're just sort of like linked together as like a similar archetype, which I'm going to talk a bit more about later. Ah, uh, okay. Um, but there's just, you know, the idea of the woman, often an indigenous woman, which um, La Llorona is often like sort of um, imagined as an indigenous Mexican woman who um, is romantically involved with a white Spanish man. And La Malinche is obviously also involved with a white Spanish man. So there's that sort of similarity there. Yeah, I'm going to talk more about that a bit later. There is a, the first re- written reference to like the name La Llorona in a 19th century sonnet by Manuel Carpio. But this poem is about a woman named Rosalia who was murdered by her husband and it doesn't involve infanticide. So it might just be a reference to like a weeping woman and not like the specific spirit. So, Mm -hmm. so again, there's a lot of variations on the story. So in some retellings of the story, in fact, actually a lot of retellings, La Llorona is not actually married to the father of her children and the children are illegitimate. And so Mm -hmm. in some versions, she kills them to avoid losing them to their father who wants to take them away and have his wife raise them. Or others say that she kills them when her lover refuses to make her his wife, often due to, and often his reasoning for that is due to her status as an indigenous woman. 
And so because of the vulnerability of being an unmarried mother, she kills her children. In another version I found, La Llorona was a huge flirt that was prevented from going out dancing with men by her children, so she often left them alone during the evenings. And one day, the bodies of her children were found drowned in a nearby body of water, either through an accident or on purpose. Like they drowned themselves or like somebody else drowned them? So either... um, The implication is either she was an irresponsible mother, so she left them alone because she wanted to go dancing and they got into trouble and like drowned because she wasn't looking after them or because she couldn't like go dancing. She drowned them to get rid of that like, you know, that little. So she could go dancing. So she could go dancing. So she could be free again. In some versions, it's purposely highlighted that it becomes very clear after La Llorona gets married, so it's a version where she's married, that her husband really only cares about the children, not her, and that sort of highlights her motivation to kill them when he's unfaithful. It's a way to get revenge on him because he doesn't really love her. And then looking at the legend of her as a spirit, um, there are some variations that depict her as very malevolent and purposefully causing harm to men. So some stories say that she appears in bodies of water and lures men into them with her crying, where she drowns them. And in other variations, she is said to steal people's children to replace her own lost ones. I mean, the image of her, like, seducing men by, like, the water side. It's very classic. Yeah, absolutely. So, any preliminary thoughts on all these sort of well, stories? I've always I've always thought Wairana was really interesting. I think we've talked, like, at least I mentioned her on, like, every episode where we've talked about, like, women's grief and, like, crying yeah, and everything. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like she's, like, the, like, crying woman she's from, the like, blueprint. folklore. She's the blueprint, yeah. Exactly. I mean, her name is like the crying a woman. Reference to yeah. her weeping. Yeah. But um, yeah. I mean, I'd love to know more about her, as I'm sure you're going to tell me. But mm-hmm. I'm already intrigued. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a thing I found during my research was in an essay entitled "Woman Hollering: Contemporary Chicana Reinscriptions of La Llorona Mythography" by Barbara Samerka. Researcher Pamela Jones noted some clear differences between the recollected explanations for La Llorona's actions between different research groups. So in the first group, which was Chicano students at the University of Oregon, over two-thirds of their explanation for her murdering her children focused on her lover, either his abandoning her or him tempting her to neglect her children. So they were like, she murdered her children because he abandoned her or he like led her away from her children and so they died. Mm-hmm. But in the second group, um, which was composed of Mexican-born clients seeking aid at a woman infants and children clinic or WIC clinic, uh, the focus was much more on the difficulties of an impoverished single mother and described her decision to kill her children as a result of her frustrations and her inability to provide for her children and really like be a mother with the resources available to her that is really interesting i know right that's so interesting Like it goes to show you like how like your like status like as a person like your gender or like your situation like really goes yeah like it really changes the way you interpret a story absolutely and like the amount of sympathy that you have Mm -hmm. for a character absolutely and it also makes me wonder if you're going to talk about beloved by tony morris i mean 
it's not in my notes, but I was planning to talk a bit about Beloved if it came okay. up. Because yes, <laughs> Beloved is very relevant to the story. And you just read it. I just read it. Yeah. So, and also urban sightings of La Llorona will report her at dumps or landfills as opposed to the traditional water or river settings. Because in cities, there are less water settings. Makes sense. So, yeah. As we discussed briefly, La Llorona can be seen to parallel many other women from mythology. So, first of all, notably Lamia and Medea from Greek mythology. So, do you know mm-hmm. about Lamia? Um, I think there's two Lamia in really? Greek mythology, and one of them is like a vampire, and one of them is like not. Fascinating. Okay, so the Lamia I know about was a woman who was having an affair with Zeus and had several children with him, but Hera learned of the affair and killed all of Lamia's children and in her grief and sorrow uh, yes. Lamia became a monster that kills other women's children okay maybe that is the vamp maybe I mean yeah that, th- could be that wrong, was my thought actually. was that maybe that's the sort of vampire figure because that's do you know what I feel like there's two Wikipedia entries but you know what I could be wrong mm-hmm. continue I know you know who Medea is of course yes <laughs> so Medea who we will definitely do an episode on at some point, but she was a witch and the lover of the hero Jason, but he became afraid of her powers and he left her for another woman. And so in her rage, she killed their children and his new wife. So definitely. You know what? I think she was justified, not in the children killing, but she was definitely justified in like being mad at Jason because he treated her horribly. Absolutely. And And that's my opinion on Medea. Absolutely. And there's also very many similarities between her and a German legend known as Die Weiße Frau, or the white woman as well. Amazing. Yeah. And so in this story, there's a wife of a count who is widowed and left with two children, and she wants to remarry. And so she's mistakenly led to believe that a distinguished aristocrat would marry her if it wasn't for her two children. So, of course, she murders her children. However, she was mistaken and is shunned by the aristocrat afterwards and entered into intense penance for the rest of her life for the crime of murdering her children. And her spirit is said to appear wearing white, wandering the streets at midnight. So Yeah. I mean, I, thought, I was also thinking about Aisha Kandisha yeah. because she, I mean, they have a lot of similar themes. Like they both wear white and they like hang out by the water and they like lure men and like yeah. they're both like terrifying, like urban legend type character characters absolutely the only real difference is that there's no like child murder in that legend but besides that it's very similar and like a lot i mean there's just so many different stories throughout many cultures of weeping women often wearing white who are said to be the ghosts of women who killed their children and then themselves which is just so interesting to me and Mm -hmm. for some reason i literally could not find like any scholarship on this and that was yeah you'd, you'd think it would be like quite an obvious topic yeah and it's like there's women in white everywhere like there's 20 different women in white in like the uk alone like at least and so i'm like hello hello i do wonder like why white because in my mind white symbolizes like virginity and like purity yeah but if they're sort of like kind of malicious figures and they're also like in mourning yeah then, like, why white that's such a good point and that's so interesting i think there's this sort of like perversion of like the wedding dress purity of womanhood in their apparition. yeah like it's sort of like ironic in a way yeah maybe possibly mm-hmm. i mean i would think that if i was like a you know ghost like spirit who was like wandering around like crying i would probably wear black yeah it's like the color of mourning there are also lots of women in black but that is not relevant to the story right now 
Okay, I suppose there are. <laughs> yeah, those are like the two. There's like a woman in black and a woman in white in like so many places. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I don't know. Anyway, that's a very interesting. There's like a lot. Of, I really wanted to like do a small like dive into weeping woman in white across the world, but I literally could not find yeah. any articles about it. And I was so frustrated. So like, I mean, that's crazy. I'm sure there's so many. I think it's interesting. I think. Well, I agree, and I mean, I know that in like a lot of countries in Asia, the um, white is for mourning. Yeah, so that makes so maybe, sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. like I think we, I think if I remember correctly, in the Oiwa episode, which is of course Japanese, yeah. she wore white to like symbolize her mourning. Yeah. So there's another like spirit, like sort of scary woman in white spirit. But it's kind of a different context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of. The color of white. But maybe there's been, like, historically, like, different colors for mourning or something. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I remember there's some, like, context Not of, like... recently, Black being it... only a big mourning color when, like, Queen Victoria's husband died or yeah, something. Yeah, I was but... also thinking of Queen Victoria because she wore black for, like, a really long time. But I am not a fashion time. historian, so... You know what? I'm not either. Don't I'd, take I'd anything I say about, about that as fact. I love fashion history, but... We're um, just guessing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, that is a thing, and it's very interesting to me, but there's, like, no scholarship about it. If anyone has any articles they want to send my way, please do. Uh, and it's also interesting because, like, there's only, like, what, like, a limited amount of, like, iconography for, like, a particular person. Like, it's not that specific for most people, but, like, the white thing is always mentioned. Yeah. Like, and also you get a lot of, like, long, dark hair and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. That. I, I mean, she, Llorona has Oh, she does. Hair. Oh, she does. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Definitely. But it's interesting because they all, like, call attention to the fact that they wear white. Yeah. I mean, if you have dark hair, then if you're wearing a white dress, that becomes all the more prominent because there's that contrast, you know. Exactly. So La Llorona exists both dually as a victim and a villain. And she's portrayed most often as a victim in her story. Um, She's jilted by her lover. She's mourning the loss of her children. However, when people tell stories about her, often she sort of becomes the villain. And I'm sort of thinking about, at this point, the stories of encounters with La Llorona. Because, again, she is sort of this, like, scary figure. She is this urban legend. There are so many people who have, like, stories of, oh, I saw La Llorona when I was out one mm-hmm. night and stuff like that. Um, and in those sort of stories, she is the antagonist. And, like, the person who's telling the story sort of becomes the you know, the protagonist, and she's, like, the scary being that, like, comes to, like, frighten them. And so in those moments and in those storytelling, she becomes, like, her tragic story and her background are forgotten and lost, and she's just, like, the scary figure sent to, like, teach children a lesson. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting, I feel like, the way that she's like, her spirit has to, like, roam the earth mm-hmm. forever, like, more like mourning her children and, like, mourning her mistakes. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's very, like, you know, Greek kind of, you just suffer for eternity yeah. kind of thing. Well, it made me think like, of, like, actually Cain from the Bible because he has to, like, wander for eternity. Or, well, for the he? rest of his life because I guess he's not immortal at that point. But, yeah, like, he... I haven't read the Bible. Well, I haven't either, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, He... <laughs> He's basically, when he kills Abel, he's sent to um, basically wander the earth for the rest of his life. Okay. As punishment, so. Yeah, like, there's a lot of Greek figures where that happens to, like, Sisyphus has to roll the boulder up for eternity, and then there's, like, 
uh, who's the one who has to like get his liver picked out like every day? Prometheus. Yes. Our man Prometheus. Like it's that kind of thing. Like you do something wrong and then you have to suffer literally for eternity. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Interesting. La Llorona could be said to represent basically the monstrosity that occurs when one fails to follow the roles of womanhood. She basically rejects the role of mother. mother. She rejects the role of mother and murders her children. Basically, she does like the least, the antithesis of mother, the least motherly thing you can do, which is take back your actions as a mother and unalive your children. Um, And so many of the stories, she's also said to be having a relationship with a man out of wedlock, which like, you're not supposed to do that. Yeah, Um, that reflects badly on your character or whatever. And so, like, as you said, it was like after colonization, so it was probably like a majority like Christian belief system. Mm -hmm. Yes. Where like, you were definitely not supposed to like have sex out of wedlock. Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't, I mean, if we're looking at, like, the pre-colonial origins, I remember from our Tlaxotiotla episode that, like, the Aztecs were also not big into, like, infidelity. That was, like, a big Yeah, yeah, it. that's true. So, um, her decision to kill her children in the moment and her immediate regret afterwards can also reflect ideas about emotional instability of women and their tendency towards hysteria. So, like, you know, she was really upset and she did this, like, crazy thing and you know oh women are so unstable you know like this is what women do when they're upset is they kill their children you know that sort of idea right yeah like to just reflect poorly on women in general yeah and also the fact that she doesn't like have like a name like she has like a title yeah uh yeah like that could in theory apply to like any woman and just like has a feminine ending you know Mm mm-hmm But when discussing the story of La Llorona, I want to focus on a quote from folklorist Rosanne Jordan, who states that we must study women's folklore as, quote, an important means of indicating differences in male and female ethos and worldview and exposing ideologies that have been accepted as representing the total culture as reflecting only a male ideal. So I totally agree. That interpretation of La Llorona, I think, really reflects primarily a male ideal. Definitely. And I also feel like, I mean, I think it's important to, like, look at stories that are very clearly from, like, patriarchal, like, societies or, like, you know, male storytellers as being, like, well, this is probably biased Mm -hmm. and, like... Yeah. But also at the same time, I do, like, I, as we know, like, I have this um, urge to, like, defend all the women who, like, you know, kill people and everything because I'm, like, well, they were misunderstood and they were, like victims of like mm-hmm. misogyny and everything yeah and i tend to like make a sympathetic backstory i'm like you know what she it wasn't her fault mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting because like i mean sometimes people do do bad things yeah i mean i think that so i think that ultimately like la Llorona's decision to kill her children if we're talking about a version in which she does kill her children like that's not a good thing no, that's wrong, for but sure. But also, we have to think about the society she was in at a time where it was very difficult to be a woman, a mother without a husband, an unwed mother, you know, a single mother. And the fact that there was likely so much stigma against, you know, uh, having children out of wedlock. And, and there's also um, a stigma like, against, like, the children in general. Like, you're not supposed to be, like, an illegitimate child. Even yeah. It's not your fault if you're illegitimate. So Yeah. In a way, I don't know if this is at all part of your interpretation, but you could 
perhaps view that as her like saving them from a life of like being judged their entire life or being illegitimate absolutely and i think that there is a quote i heard recently and i can't remember who said it, and i can't remember the exact quote so i'm very sorry but it was basically like when you create a culture that creates such a stigma around um having children out of wedlock you know having children mm-hmm. without outside of marriage then you also create a culture with a great case for infanticide that's true and so and like it's also like it's a really hard decision to like you know commit infanticide like it's a horrible thing yeah. like and no mother wants to do that i mean it's clear probably. that she she's upset about it like yeah the whole like thing, it's a hard decision her whole thing is that she's crying like she's crying for eternity because of what she did but also like yeah i think you know she was put in a situation where her actions were she was put in a situation where things were really rough for her there was not any good choices yeah like they're like obviously it's not good to kill your children but it's like it's also really easy to like condemn her without thinking about the context that she was living in Mm -hmm. and like how she must have been feeling Mm -hmm. and be like well if i was la llorona i would have simply not killed my like you don't know that you are not la llorona yeah i mean (laughs) you should consider the circumstances Mm mm-hmm and, like, sometimes when you're put in, like, a horrible circumstance, like, you, like, you, you're not thinking, like, clearly. Like, obviously, looking at it from, like, an subject, or, like, if you're an objective, like, outside view, you're obviously like, okay, well, that's wrong. But, like, if you're living that situation, I sound like I'm defending infanticide. I'm honestly not. But you know what I mean? Yeah. No, like, I- being inside, like, a particular situation, it's, like, harder to, like, make the right decision. Yeah, to figure out what your way out is going to be. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to, like, live, like, such a disadvantaged life. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we really need to talk about how putting all the blame on La Llorona really absolves the man in the story. That's so true, honestly. Because... It's always, like, if two... Like, if a man and a woman, like, both commit, like, whatever, like, adultery or, like, they have, like, a wedlock or whatever, it's the woman who always gets punished. Yeah, because... Yeah. Because she's the one who, like, has the physical burden in, like, most traditional stories where the woman is generally the one pregnant, she's the one who has, like, the physical burden. And the man, like, the man is allowed to be a mystery because, like, you don't know who the father is, but you know who the mother is. But, like, the man is also, like, the one who has responsibility here. And if we're talking about the story of La Corona, and we're talking about a story where, in a lot of the versions, this is a story of a real serious power imbalance because... We're talking about a story between a man who is a colonizer Mm -hmm. and a woman who is part of the class in which he has colonized. Exactly. And, like, maybe they were in love and maybe he decided he wasn't in love anymore. But that's still a huge power imbalance. And that basically makes her it very even clearer that without him, like, she has very few options because and like knowing like what would happen to her if like he left her or whatever yeah, because she's already from a disadvantaged class you have to you have to put some of the responsibility on him as well yeah and even in stories where it's not a story about colonization it's often the man is from a higher socioeconomic status than the woman than la llorona so even in those versions of the story there's still a power imbalance because he's able to like move on and like go and be rich somewhere else but she is already living she's stuck with in a vulnerable a, yeah, situation she's stuck with a pregnancy and yeah and she has children and as the woman from pamela jones's study noted like 
it's hard being a single mom when you have you have no money and no options and no resources. Like, what are you? What can you, you don't do? have as many options as and you like, also have the stigma of being a woman who had a child out of wedlock and then therefore you might not have community support. So, like, mm-hmm. you know, what are you what are you supposed to do? Yeah, like you don't have all the choices that you might want to have. Like you don't have like the resources mm-hmm. and you also don't want to live with like a horrible stigma forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, he, if he is the one is the power to put her in a situation where killing her children feels necessary, he's also the one with the power to take her out of that situation, but he doesn't. And, like, mm-hmm. that doesn't mean he had to get back together with her, but he could have given her some money. He could have, like, helped make her situation feel more secure, you know, like. And ultimately, I feel like it's less on La Llorona as an individual not to murder her children than it is on society to not put women in situations where infanticide seems like it's the only option. That's so true. Because people are punished for, like, doing things that, Mm -hmm. like, they were kind of pushed into doing. Yeah. By, like, societal stigma and, like... Absolutely. You know. Yeah. And I feel like um, the story of La Llorona is a story of a society in which cruelty towards women goes unpunished and therefore women must take drastic actions in order to preserve themselves and make their feelings heard. Because now we all hear La Llorona's suffering. We all hear her pain. Like, we hear her crying. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, we mentioned this before, but like, I think it's so cool that, um, what was that researcher's name? Pamela Jones. um, Yes, that she, like, interviewed or like surveyed people like yeah. the different yeah that's just like so understandings that they had about Lyorona. that's i think more people should do that like yeah it's like totally true that and i think i mean obviously like women in general have like more sympathetic views towards like mythological and like folkloric women mm-hmm. who were yeah like evil or like supposedly evil and who did bad things mm-hmm. because you know we like understand that it's not always that simple and that we shouldn't always just condemn people mm-hmm. i mean there's such a thing as like a bad action like killing your child is wrong mm-hmm. there's no way around that but like mm-hmm. there's also some nuance to be to be had around this this subject mm-hmm. and just the way that women are treated that like everything they do gets punished mm-hmm. Yeah, and the one more, like, sort of um, layer I want to add to it is that, like, when I mentioned earlier that La Llorona is often seen at, like, dumpsters and, like, trash yards and cities is, like, as much as it's, like, hard to talk about, situations like La Llorona's are still, still happen to this day in, in, like, places where women have children and feel like they can't take care of them for whatever reason. And tra- dumpsters and trash yards are places where women in cities will dispose of children. So mm-hmm. there's that layer as well. So the character of La Llorona is also a very influential archetype for Mexican and Chicana women, alongside the archetypes of La Malinche and also the Virgin of Guadalupe. So both the story of La Malinche and La Llorona depict Mexican and Chicana women as passive and sexually abused beings. In their stories, they commit violent and unforgivable acts due to the love they experience for white colonizing men and therefore are sort of viewed as traitors to their people. And these stories really define gender roles for women in Mexican and Chicana cultures. As described by Mary Louise Pratt, author of Yo Soy La Malinche, Chicano Writings and the Poetics of Ethnonationalism, 
Whether committed by a man or a woman, betrayal is coded in the language as female. To be a traitor is by implication to become female, while to be a female is to inherently be a potential traitor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So basically, La Llorona and La Maniche are positioned opposite the Virgin of Guadalupe, and they basically create a virgin whore dichotomy that Mexican and Chicano women are forced into to this day. Like, you don't want to be La Maniche, you don't want to be La Llorona. You want to be the Holy Virgin, basically. She also, like, exists to, like, warn women against. Like, you don't want to become this. Yeah. And so, thus, many contemporary Chicana writers have worked to reclaim and redeem the character of La Llorona. And so, for example, Monica Palacios rewrote La Llorona into a tragic lesbian romance in her story La Llorona Loca, The Other Side. Sandra Cisneros reimagines La Llorona in her story Woman Hollering Creek, where the main character... Cleophilus leaves her husband instead of being abandoned, and with the help of two other women, ends the story laughing instead of wailing. And in her poem, La Vie, I never said it was simple, Angela de Oyo rewrites La Llorona as transforming her wails into poetry, thus producing and birthing something new with her sorrow instead of taking a life. It's really nice. Yeah. And so all these rewritings and many, many more, those are just a few examples, allow for the expansion and redefinition of Chicana and Mexican women outside the patriarchal roles that have been set for them through these replication of legends and figures, which is really cool. Yeah, I think that's really nice. And I think like retelling a story that like you feel like the character in it or the figure in it is like so like tragic and so like Mm -hmm. oppressed and everything and like turning it into something like more sympathetic or like more happy is like really beautiful mm-hmm. especially if you're taking something from like your own culture like rather than like yeah and when it's like a role that you feel like you're being forced into and to take that and just sort of like reclaim it and rewrite and be like this is the this is who I see this is the person that I want this character to be I feel like that's such a beautiful way to like interact with yeah like folk tales and like mythology mm-hmm. yeah you know I mean Lizzie knows I'm always like oh there's this new rewriting of like a yeah. logical woman like I'm gonna read it now and see if it's good like but um yeah it's really awesome it really is I like I I've been like wanting to oh okay I've always liked retellings mm-hmm. but I do like want to read more of them now like, me too it's just so interesting mm-hmm. and like the ways that people like interpret their own like stories like from their culture or from their religion and like yeah it's just like a nice way to interact with stories that are probably like very old and like yeah Possibly, you know, like, written and, like, interpreted by men, like, throughout the centuries. Yeah. I I think it's really nice. Like, take that into your own hands. I mean, like, what you said about how stories that are told or sort of birthed, quote-unquote, in a patriarchal time, and to sort of take that and rewrite it and, like, reimagine it is really awesome and really powerful and cool. Because I I think these stories are still meaningful, and really important and also yeah and it also gives them a little bit of an update for like the modern time as well because like Like, the context in which they're like we're first told and understood is important but then there's a way to be like here is how we can take it from the context the patriarchal context and still make it into something meaningful for us Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it is really beautiful to like take something and like give it like even more meaning to you and to like people in your community it's it's really beautiful and also retellings can just be very fun yeah absolutely 
Yeah. So thank you very much, Zoe, for today's episode. It was very interesting. And thank you for listening. Please feel free to subscribe, leave us a review, listen to other episodes, and follow us on Instagram. Yeah. Thank you so much. Goodbye. May the Ladies Podcast is produced, researched, and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythoLadies and visit us on our website at MythoLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.